0: So many testimonies swirling around uh, that I hear all the time, people being touched. I want you to stand for the reading of the word, would you? And I'm so thankful. I met a lady. She was here in the first service, sitting right there. And um, she said, Pastor Jeff, 30 years ago, you gave an invitation and I came down. Wow. So what was I, 16? And... She said, I came down, been through a lot of things since then. But she said, I kept hearing you on the radio. And I said, finally, she said, because I got away. I drifted But the radio. Every time I turned it on, there you were. And I said, I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere. She said, finally, I knew I had to come back and I'm here. And I brought my daughter and my son and, I, and my son-in-law. And so I met them and they said, we joined the church last week. We brought her here today. So everywhere there are testimonies. And I want you to know, Jesus knows your pain. We're looking at the book of Revelation, the seven churches that Jesus spoke to in the beginning of the book of Revelation. He appears to John and he addresses seven churches. And with every one of those churches, he begins this way. I know. I know. I know your works. I know how you've been living. I know your needs. I know how you're being attacked. I know how. I know not just that you're under attack, but how you're being attacked. I know the way the enemy is coming at you. And he didn't just say, I know like some apathetic knowing. He was saying, I know in a caring, compassionate, merciful knowing. In other words, I know, and I'm going to do something about it. I know, and I'm going to help you. He's not off flinging other stars into space. His eye is on the sparrow, and therefore his eye is on you. It's on me. He cares. He feels your pain. and The pain of your loved ones. He hurts when you hurt. And I want you to listen to now Jesus addressing the third church, third of seven. It's the church in Pergamos. Now I'm going to forewarn you, this is a strong word today. Can everybody take a strong word? Okay. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he, who has the sharp two-edged sword, that means the word of God. Now here's verse 13. I know. There it is. I know. What does he know? Your works I know where you dwell. I know where you live. Where Satan's throne is. So he identifies Pergamos as a city where Satan had a throne. And you hold fast my name. And you have not denied my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Now he's going to meddle. So let's let Jesus meddle. I have a few things against you because you have there in your fellowship those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. I'm going to tell you what that is, so hang tight. What did Balaam do? He taught Balak, the king of the Moabites, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. What was the stumbling block? To eat things sacrificed to idols. And to commit sexual immorality. Verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So they got two bad teachings going through this church: doctrine of Balaam, doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Which thing Jesus says, this doctrine, I hate it. I hate it. Then verse 16: repent, or else I will come to you quickly. And will fight against them, those who hold to these doctrines, with the sword of my mouth, which is the word of God. Then verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear. Do we have an ear today? Do we have an ear? Because if you got a spiritual ear, then he says, let, you, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now back then, but, he, but here's the church. So he's saying the same thing to us. Father, thank you for your word today. Give us ears to really hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell your neighbor, you got an ear to hear. Amen. Now, there's, um, again, we're looking at the seven churches and what Jesus said to the seven churches, uh, one at a time. He had a different word for each church, okay? It was an individual word. So if he was to appear here today, boy, it would be it would put the fear of the Lord in me greatly. But what if he came today and said, here's my word to turning point? How many of you would have a little more prayer before you got here today? Right. But he had a prayer for every a word, individual word for every church. Now, the first one was Ephesus. They were the lacking church because they had lost their first love. And Jesus said, that's what I have Against you, you've lost your first love. Second church was Smyrna. Smyrna was the loyal church, Jesus said, because in really tough times, you have not denied my name. So they're the loyal church. But this church in Pergamos is the lax church. So you have the lacking church, the loyal church. This one is the lax church. And we could say also the church of compromise, the doctrine of compromise the message, the seduction of compromise had infiltrated this Pergamus church. The interesting thing to me is Smyrna was a beautiful city. Pergamos is a, was an incredible city, uh, beautiful city. It was beautiful. It was cultured. It was educated. Uh, they had a library that had 200,000 volumes in it. So they were literate. They were not illiterate uh, folks on the other side of the tracks. No, these were educated, uh, high-end, cultured, cultivated, learned people in the city of Pergamos. It was a major center for literature, a major center for the arts. Pergamos was a city where people would say, let's take a journey to Pergamos. Walk through the streets, take in the sights. Like people used to do in New York City. They don't anymore much. You wear a bulletproof vest if you go there now. But used to, you would say at Christmas time, let's go to New York City, see the lights, enjoy the culture that's there. That was Pergamos. It was beautiful among the cities of John's time. But watch this, everybody. While it was highly educated, sophisticated, cultured, they were still very spiritually dark goes to show you, you can be very educated, but still be utterly spiritually ignorant and in darkness. Go to any college in our country, any college. They can show you how to do something, but there's no wisdom because there's no fear of the Lord amongst them. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you don't have the fear of the Lord, you don't have any wisdom. The risen Lord points out to John that not only are they spiritually dark because they were, they were in the stronghold of idolatry, they worship the Greek mythological gods Zeus, Achilles, Apollos, all these others, these total phony, fake uh, mythological gods that have been made up by people like Homer and just the Greek world. As time went on, created these gods, worshiped them, but but none of them were real. They were all phony and fake, and yet they would bow and worship figurines that were made to signify these gods. They would worship these false gods. They were in the satanic grip of dark idolatry. But not only that, they were killing God's people. They martyred Antipas. Jesus names him. So Jesus, when you're under fire, Jesus knows your name. Because Antipas was martyred and Jesus knew his name. Jesus spoke his name to John. My servant, Antipas, was martyred, murdered, killed for his witness of me in this cultivated, cultured city. You know that Germany was one of the most Advanced, cultured countries in the world when Nazism put its death grip on them. it matters where a place is spiritually. You can have it all up kinds of head knowledge, but be totally lost here. Totally lost. Now Jesus begins telling John to tell. The church at Pergamus, He begins with positives. He did with most of them. He starts out telling them what they're doing right. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name, folks. No matter what, we got to remain true to the name of Jesus. You can't let the name of Jesus go in everything that signifies the one and only way to heaven, the only sacrifice for your sins and mine that will ever remove our sins. The, the blood of Jesus. There's no other way to heaven but Jesus. We will never deny His name. Now, He says, "You didn't renounce. You didn't renounce your faith in Me. You remain true to My name, even in the days of Antipas when He was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. That didn't scare you into denying My name. You remain true. So these Pergamene believers." lived in a difficult, spiritually dark place that was fully in the grip of paganism, darkness, where literally Jesus said, Satan's got a throne in your city. He has been enthroned in your city. Wow, how would you like that if the Lord said, hey, those of you living in Fort Worth where Satan's throne is, (laughs) some of you are sitting there going, "Amen." I think that's probably about right. But wow, so they were really in the grip of the devil. And Jesus said, but here's my issue with you. There's, there's, There's a problem. And here's why they were called the lax church, the compromising church. According to Jesus, they had carelessly allowed two destructive teachings into their midst. Doctrine of Balaam, Doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I'm going to deal later in this series, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So I'm going to deal only today with the doctrine of Balaam, because believe me, that's enough. Jesus called out. He said, there are those among you who have embraced the doctrine of Balaam. So you go, well, what in the world is the doctrine of Balaam? I wish I understood what that is. Well, here's what it is. Listen to Jesus. Verse 14. I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam. So there were people teaching what Balaam had taught in this church, maybe in their Sunday school, maybe in their life groups. I'm just making it real here today. There were people in this church teaching whatever the doctrine of Balaam was. So we're about to find out what it was. What did Balaam do? We know the story that um, the children of Israel were going through the wilderness. There was about a million and a half of them. Some say two million, a gigantic, massive sea of people. And they began to go through the land of the Moabites. So Balak, the king of the Moabs, uh, wanted them cursed. So he went looking for somebody who had a reputation for being spiritual and being able to do things supernatural. They heard about Balaam, they called on Balaam. He sent messengers to Balaam. He said, I'll pay you a bunch of money if you will come and curse these people so that their journey is completely stopped and destroyed and they are stopped in their tracks, which would have stopped the plan of salvation. So Balaam said, I can't do it. Well, Balak sent another group of men with more money. Balaam said, well, maybe I need to pray about it. And then finally, again, he sent him a deal he couldn't resist. He said, okay, I'll come, but I can't promise what I'm going to say. Long story short, he stands Balaam up on a ledge where he sees this sea of Israeli people going through the wilderness. He said, now curse them. Well, he couldn't because all of a sudden he began to prophesy, prophesy positive things about God's plan for this people. And Balaam, The king of the Moabites is sitting there having a heart attack. What are you doing? I paid you to curse them, not to bless them. And here's what Balaam said I can't curse who God has blessed. I can't do it. Everybody say, I can't be cursed. If you know Jesus, I can't be cursed because I'm blessed. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Somebody may curse you, but it won't land. It won't land. But now, so Balak said, well, get up there and do it again. Well, again, and this time he gave one of the most beautiful messianic prophecies in the whole Bible. So Balak said, man, what's it going to take? Come on, Balaam, curse him. Well, he gets up there again and prophesies positive things. So when he's done, Balaam realizes, I'm not going to get my paycheck. So he said, Balak, let me tell you what to do. Here's how you take these people down. He said, get your, the women, of the, the Moabite women, and the, temple, the idolatrous temple prostitutes and send them among the men of Israel and seduce Israel. And when Israel is seduced, God will have to judge them and they will be stopped they will be stopped. And so that's exactly what happened. And God's people came under the judgment of God. Thousands lost their lives under the judgment of God. The doctrine of Balaam, therefore, is the doctrine of compromise. It's the doctrine of compromise. See, the message to Israel was, oh, intermingle with the Moabite women. It's okay. A little bit of compromise here. A little bit of compromise there. It won't matter. Because after all, you're God's people. God's chosen. So you got grace on you. So that little compromise isn't going to hurt anything. Go ahead and intermingle with the Moabite women. But God had forbidden that. And so they came under judgment. So the doctrine of Balaam was the message That a child of God can live like the world and still serve God. That's the doctrine of Balaam. Now I ask you, dear church, is that all over the church today? The doctrine of Balaam? You can have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God and it's okay because you're under grace. Call that greasy grace. It's the false message that you as a believer in Jesus Christ can have the best of both worlds. One foot in, one foot out. You're kind of in, kind of out, kind of there, kind of not. You're in church on Sunday, the world on Monday. You can embrace other beliefs and other faiths and mingle it in with the Christian faith because no big deal. Because after all, you're saved. Doctrine of Balaam Encouraged Christians then in the church in Pergamos, some were teaching this. And some are teaching it now in the Western church, in entire denominations. This doctrine slips in and infiltrates the church today. Don't be so legalistic. Don't be so serious about this thing. Live, enjoy life, party hardy. It encourages Christians to forget that they were called to separate themselves from this world. Are you with me? He said, what do you mean, Jeff? Here's what I mean. I'm in it, but I'm not of it. I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. I'm in it, but it's not my home. I've got another home. I got another kingdom. I got another king. He wasn't voted in and he's not a Democrat, and he's not a Republican, and he's not a Libertarian. He's none of those things. No. He's a monarch. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. And so, the whole message that the doctrine of Balaam brings is, you can be worldly and still please God. The Bible says, Leave the corruption and compromise of the world. Is that what it says? Am I reading it right? 2 Corinthians six seventeen. So leave the corruption and compromise of the world. Leave it on Sunday and pick it up again on Monday. Oh, that's not what it says. I'm sorry. Leave it for how long? For good. Uh, don't link up with those who will pollute you. Be careful who you run with. I want you all for myself. Who's talking there? God is. What does he say? I want you all for myself. You're mine. I bought you with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I'll be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. So the Bible says we're to leave the corruption. So we're we're to come out from among them. Now, that doesn't mean you don't talk to people that aren't saved. I talk to unsaved people all the time. Have conversation. I'm, I, have, I enjoy conversing with them, but I don't go where they go on Friday nights. There's acquaintances and there's BFFs. For those of you that don't know, social media talks, speak, talk, talk, speak. That's best friends forever. Okay? But no. No, the whole idea is, as believers, we're called out and called in. He delivered us, Colossians 1.13, he delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of God's dear son. So he brought us out to bring us in. But in order to come out, you've got to come out. Okay? So this is why the doctrine of Balaam is so damaging, because it makes people, believers, indistinguishable from worldly people. Because if you're walking like them, talking like them, acting like them, going where they go, doing what they do, how can you tell anybody about Jesus? You're no different from them. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Listen to what Jesus said. If the salt loses its taste, it can't be made salty again. Salt is useless if it loses its salty taste. It'll be thrown out. And watch this, where people will just walk on it. In other words... When the church loses its saltiness, it loses the world's respect. I ask you today, is the church being walked on today? Are people dissing it, no longer attending, no longer listening, no longer tuning in? Because if you lose your saltiness, your witness, your testimony, your distinctive differences... As believers, if you lose that, you're no longer salty. And people just say, ah, the church, eh," and they throw it out. And they walk on it. So furthermore, the doctrine of Balaam is the message that a little sin, a little compromise, doesn't hurt. Especially if it brings financial gain. Because Balaam loved that money. Honey. He loved that money. So he said, Man, I blew it when I was up there. I was supposed to be cursing them. How can I get the paycheck? Ah, I'll curse God's people this way. And he showed how to bring God's people down, and he got his paycheck. So, Doctrine of Balaam is the message that little compromise here, little compromise there, no big deal. You can cut on those taxes. You can compromise your convictions at the office party. God understands. You can you can play both sides of the fence at work. You can uh, 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 lift a little bit out of that tip jar at Starbucks. You know, I saw somebody do that. They They acted like they were going in to give a tip and they came out with a handful. Tip money. It's quiet in here. Have you done that? Isn't it amazing what we can justify if we just think long enough? Hold back from supporting God's work and and all these things. It's okay. Little corner cut here and there. God doesn't really care because most everything else is okay. Here's the thing. The bottom line with the doctrine of Balaam is the person swallowing it is reduced to compromising their biblical convictions for the sake of money or some other kind of material fleshly gain. And when you do that, now listen carefully to me because here's where I want to, I'm talking to Jeff and, and I'm talking to you and all of you online and those listening by radio and everywhere else. Listen carefully. When you do this, when you live a life of cutting corners here and there and little compromises, you're selling away your integrity. Now let me talk to you about integrity. See, Balaam sold his integrity For the money that Balak paid him to destroy Israel. He sold his integrity. He shook hands with the devil, literally, in a plot to destroy God's plan of salvation. Because they had to get to the promised land. Jesus is calling out this same error in the Pergamos church. He's saying, there's people in your church teaching this. That's why I tell you, church don't go where your ears are being tickled. I like listening to messages that sting me a little bit. How else am I going to grow? But if my ears are always being tickled and my flesh is being tickled, then then I'm not growing. And that's not the word of God. When God talks to me, there's always a little bit of conviction that makes me want to get a little bit more right. Right? Paul said this kind of false teaching is like a little bit of yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. That means it spreads through your whole life. And if it's a church, it spreads through the whole church. And that's why he's addressing it in Pergamus, because they were in trouble of their whole church coming under this bad doctrine of Balaam. It was taking over. So what's integrity? Well, there's a Hebrew word and you translate it into integrity. Here's what the Hebrew word means. Wholeness. Uprightness, honesty, moral soundness, solid character. That's integrity. What you see is what you get, and what you get is what you see. Uh, How many of you remember the math term, integer? Remember that, integer? I hated math. I remember integer. I didn't even want to say it, integer. I hate saying it now, integer, but I got to tell you, it comes, that's where integrity comes from, that word. Because integer meant one whole number, a whole number. It wasn't fractionalized, it wasn't divided, it it wasn't uh, uh, um, one number plus part of another one. An integer was a whole number, it was complete, it was whole. And we get integrity from that word. And so it means that our beliefs have been integrated into our behavior. So what we say we believe is the way we live. So we are whole. When you're walking in integrity, you're walking in wholeness. When you're not walking in, in integrity, you are divided. You are split. You are fractionalized. Like most of Washington. I had to get that out. Because integrity is going the way of the dodo bird. It's on the the extinction list. Integrity is hard to find. Find, Try to find somebody who has integrity. Real integrity. Integrity isn't lost overnight. It's chipped away in a hundred different little decisions we don't think really matter. That's how integrity is gained. You make good decisions and integrity is built or you make bad decisions and integrity is torn down. Scientists now say that a series of slits, not a giant gash, is what sank the Titanic. They have sonar devices now that are so sophisticated, they recently sent the sonar signals down to the Titanic, and they were looking for a great big gash in it where it hit that iceberg and it made it sink. But they didn't find that. They found six little gashes along six watertight holds, and those little gashes are what sank the great ship it's the little compromises that sink us it's the little foxes that spoil the vine we don't think anybody cares we don't think it really matters because it's little but here's the deal If you'll steal a dollar, you'll steal a hundred. If you'll be responsible over a dollar, you'll be responsible over a hundred. Jesus said, whoever can be trusted with small things can also be trusted with big things. And whoever is dishonest in little things will be dishonest in big things too. So see, it's those little decisions that make or break integrity in our lives. Jesus was solid, walking, talking, consummate, personified integrity. Amen. I read about a preacher. I know this is a preacher story, but it's true. I read about a preacher. He preached on honesty and integrity one Sunday, and the next day, he grabbed a bus to go downtown to do some shopping. And when he got onto the bus and, and gave the bus driver his fare, the bus driver gave him back Way more than he was supposed to get back. So, this preacher, by his own admission, Pastor Richie was his name, by his own admission, he put it in his pocket and said, Well, his mistake, my game. And he sat down. He said, Every yard that bus drove, I came under conviction. It was just change, a small gash in the Titanic. A small decision, a small amount. But he said, by the time we got to where we were going, I knew what I had to do. So I walked up to the bus driver and said, hey, you gave me way too much change here. Watch this. The bus driver said, aren't you Pastor Richie? (laughs) And he said, well, yes. And he said, I was in your church yesterday. And I heard what you preached on. I'll be there this Sunday. Get that? Integrity over a little bit. Somebody with integrity, if they make a promise, they keep it. You ever noticed these days, if, if you're going to make a, a contract, you, you got to sign so many documents. They take you back to the doctor that first spanked you when you were born. You know why? Because nobody can trust anybody's word anymore. Because integrity's gone. Used to be a handshake, and I believed you. If they commit a huge mistake, the person of integrity admits it, and they don't blame everybody else. If they believe something, they support it with the lifestyle they say they believe. Uh, They pay their bills. They tell the truth. They're prompt and on time honoring the time of others. That's an integrity issue. Amen. They give their company an honest day's work. They don't cut unethical corners, people of integrity. Bible says, listen to this, Proverbs 28, 6. Better is the poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. Amen. It's better to be poor with integrity, according to God, than to be rich and crooked. I'm going to give you real quickly a few benefits of integrity. I'm not going to expand on it. Just going to give it to you. But how many of you want, how many of you love to be blessed by God? All right. Now God is not dealing with this. He didn't put this in the book of Revelation to make us feel bad about ourselves. He gave it as a warning. Don't fall into the doctrine of Balaam. Walk in integrity. Never give up your integrity. Never sell it away. There needs to be a sign over every church door. Our integrity is not for sale. There needs to be a sign over everybody professing Christ. My integrity is not for sale. So here's a few quick benefits and we'll close. Safety and security. How many of you like being safe? Secure. All right, listen to this. He who walks with integrity walks securely. Wow. If you walk with integrity, there's a lot of things you don't even need to pray about because your integrity tells you what to do. Second, protection. Protection. May integrity and honesty protect me, prayed David. For I put my hope in you. David said, I know. If I walk in integrity and honesty, it protects me. Our culture believes the opposite. Lies will protect you. If you tell a lie, it will protect you. We lie to protect ourselves. But the Bible tells the opposite. If you you are truthful and walk in integrity, that will protect you. That protects you. Guidance. The integrity of the upright will guide them. How does it guide you? Because of integrity, you have the knowledge of the word of God, of what is right and wrong, good and bad, light and dark. So you don't even need to pray about some things because integrity guides you to make the right decision. Here's one for the family. This is my last one. The righteous man walks in his integrity and his children are blessed after him. Wow. So when a kid sees a parent not living hypocritically or duplicitously, not, I'm not talking about perfect, but genuinely, authentically, that kid says, huh, that's the way to live, with integrity. How have we lost integrity in America? Well, it didn't happen overnight. It's happened over decades. But integrity is almost gone. It's almost gone. None of our leaders, very few of them, hardly any of them, are displaying it, modeling it, walking in it. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they take bribes. If you want to find out what integrity looks like, don't look there. If you want to know what integrity looks like, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Can we stand together? And look at his apostles. They walked in integrity. The Bible says a fly in the ointment of the perfume bottle makes it stink. Meaning, somebody who says they're a believer and they live duplicitously and people see it, your testimony's ruined. You can get it back, but you can't tell people that Jesus loves you and he really changed my life, and then you turn around and do something crooked. So this is why integrity matters. I I need God's help. We all need God's help, because we're in a nation swirling down the drain. We need another model. And thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. Can we lift our hands to the Lord today? Lord, this message is not easy to hear. It wasn't easy for Pergamus to hear it. It certainly wasn't easy for this letter to be read to them where Jesus said... This false teaching, this false message is being taught in your church. They had to take care of that. And Lord, we come to you as a people of God. Lord, help us to shine with integrity in a world that is dark and dishonest and cheating. Help us to walk in integrity. Chisel it into our character. Lord, we confess to you that we are not remotely perfect. And that we need the help of God to shine like lights in a dark and perverted generation. So help us, Lord, as the people of God to walk in integrity. Can you breathe that prayer, dear church? Lord, help me to be a person of integrity. I reject the doctrine of Balaam, which you hate. And I embrace the teachings of Christ in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask some prayers to come down to the front. Would you please prayers? <laughs> it's funny how you can get caught when you're not walking in integrity. I'm going to tell it quickly. You got to hear this. Four students were late to class on the day of a test. They all came in together and they said, teacher, Mrs. whatever, Smith, uh, We had a flat on the way, man, we were on the way, we would have been on time, we would have taken that test, but we had a flat, she said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And she said, let me ask you, all four of you, each of you go to a different corner of the room and face the wall. And they said, okay. Thinking we're gonna take our tests now. And she said, now all of you write down, which tire was flat? you get it? And they can't look at each other because they're all facing the wall. Oh, it's the front tire, back tire. Boy, I hope I'm right. No, they were busted. If you don't walk in integrity, God will get you. You better walk in integrity. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, Father, thank you for the blessing of God. We lift our hands and just thank Jesus, the Lord of consummate integrity. Thank you, Jesus. We pray your blessing on us as a people. I pray, Lord, for everyone struggling with a heartbreak, a heartache, with financial stress, with the hurt of betrayal, with kids who have gone wacko and their hearts are broken, with insurmountable mountains, it seems to them to climb, To navigate, I pray, grace them, touch them. I pray in Jesus' name, be with them today.